RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Jim DeVico. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 398 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report from the Star Trek multiverse. Recorded live on Tuesday, January 29th, 2019, and available for download or streaming on Friday, February 1st at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Anthony. All right, we've got a full show this week. Kenna, why don't you tell us what we've got going on? Well, this week, we're trekking out Jonathan Frakes' latest spoiler and what actor James McAvoy would do if he got to play a young Picard. Heather Caden and Alex Kurtzman chat in the ready room about upcoming short treks, and Paramount Top Brass discuss the future of Star Trek on the silver screen. In Star Trek Online and Gaming News, we're talking about the Mirror of Discovery mission episodes featuring Captain Sylvia Killy and the mysterious planet Pavo. In our on-screen segment, we're discussing the Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 2, New Eden. And as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Captains, remember that those hailing frequencies are always open, and we love to hear from you between episodes. So please reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Priority One Pod. You can even send us an email via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. As we do every week, Captains, we have to take a moment to thank our patrons. Listeners like you that help support this show financially each and every month. Without them, we wouldn't be able to upgrade software or equipment. For instance, as you already know, we are now broadcasting our live recordings on Tuesday nights on multiple platforms like Facebook, Periscope on Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube. Now, this would not be possible without the ongoing support of patrons, so we do owe them our gratitude. Speaking of patrons, we want to welcome a new one, Daydreamer. Thank you so very much for joining us. We are so grateful for your contributions, and we hope that we can continue to provide the content that you've come to expect, both on Patreon and on PriorityOnePodcast.com. Now, we do mention this every week that we do understand a financial contribution may not be in the cards for you, but there are other ways that you can help support Priority One Podcast. For instance, keep an eye on us on social media because we do tend to post throughout the week. And when we do, make sure to share those posts with your friends. And when our episodes come out on Fridays, let your friends know that they can get their weekly roundup of Star Trek news right here on Priority One Podcast. Before we move on, we want to remind you about our very special event coming up. On February 16th, we're celebrating our 400th episode with a 12-hour Extra Life event. For 12 hours, the Priority One team will be playing games live on Twitch to raise money for Extra Life's partnership with Children's Miracle Network and the Philadelphia Children's Hospital. 
We'll have giveaways from our friends like the Roddenberry Store and more, and all the proceeds go to Extra Life and the Philadelphia Children's Hospital. Again, that's happening on Saturday, February 16th, starting at 1 p.m. Help us raise funds to give children a fighting chance. And just a reminder, if you haven't already gotten to it, please take a few minutes and fill out our listener survey. You can find a link in the show notes for this episode at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO398 or pinned on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. We want to hear from you. What do you like about our show? What would you like to see more of? Let us know what you think. Once again, check out the link in our show notes or visit our social media channels and fill out our listener survey today. Now let's check out the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. I don't know. Then let's check it out. Well, if you are excited to see Sir Patrick Stewart reprise his role as the iconic Captain Picard, then Sir Pat's next-gen co-star, Jonathan Frakes, may have some bad news for you. The incomparable Jonathan Frakes was busy promoting Star Trek Discovery's Season 2 episode, New Eden, and in classic Frakes fashion, spilled the proverbial Trek nuggets. In an interview with Deadline, Frakes slips, quote, Patrick isn't playing Captain Jean-Luc Picard this time. He's done with that phase of his career in Starfleet in this show. That's about the only thing I do know about the show, end quote. While this isn't really breaking news, it does confirm theories that Picard has moved on from the center seat. Frakes also commented on the likelihood of a Star Trek The Next Generation reunion taking place on Picard's show, saying, quote, The feeling is we would love to be part of it, but the feeling is also that it's Patrick's show. Having said that, I can't imagine a world where there's no reference to what happened to the rest of the Next Generation cast. End quote. For a link to the article, which also discusses Discovery's chemistry and big screen nature, check out the show notes. Now, I should point out that the reason that he was having this interview is because he directed season two, episode two. That's why they were talking to Jonathan Frakes about this particular episode. Um, so he, had, he, actually, he actually had a lot to say, um, including the little stinger at the end of a, of a Hollywood Reporter article. Did you hear about this? He literally said... I'm not allowed to say what role I have in the new series. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, so this guy, he's getting, a, he's getting a reputation for himself because if you remember from uh, season one, he's the one that tweeted out the picture with the captain's chair and the ISS Discovery plaque in the back. I can't tell if he's just trolling us all. This is the thing. You know what? I think it helps when he does these kind of things. I wouldn't be surprised if his role is he's directing the pilot episode. He's uh, He's a proven director for yeah. Star Trek. I mean, the, my two favorite episodes for Discovery were directed by him. I would be satisfied if his only involvement is directing the Picard series without starring in it. But yeah, I would like to see what's up with William T. Riker. I would love to see him in front of the camera, though, as well. Just, you know, we haven't really seen Frakes on screen um, in, in quite a long time. He's accomplished behind the, behind the camera, uh, but it would be nice to see him uh, back in front of the camera as well. Oh, there was that great uh, Enterprise finale episode that he was in as Riker. I mean, that's a classic and sarcastic. Okay, we're going to have to cut that comment because you need to noise. go. <laughs> Insert cricket noise. When the unnamed Picard series was first announced back at Star Trek Las Vegas in 2018, there were a few stars that made a pitch to join the production. One such star was former young Patrick Stewart, James McAvoy. Well, if you thought McAvoy was just being cheeky, think again. 
In an interview with MTV News, McAvoy was given the opportunity to promote himself for the role of young Picard, to which he replied, quote, I'm jonesing for some trekking, man. I will take you where no Star Trek fan has gone before. I will reveal things about Jean-Luc Picard that nobody ever wanted to see. I will rip this captain to shreds, end quote. McAvoy, who was smiling during the previous quote, later said, quote, No, I'm not expecting to get a call to play the young Jean-Luc, unfortunately. But I will be tuning in, and I can't wait to see what he does, because he's a brilliant actor, and he's amazing in that role. They're doing something different, and that's awesome, end quote. I've said it, you know, we had, we had this, there's no reason to go into this deeper than what we already did when we first reported on this. Um, but I think it's really cute that he is a supporter of Trek, like he's into it. What I find really interesting about this story is that people keep asking him, about this role that doesn't exist. And I don't think for a hot second that there's going to be a young Picard starring James McAvoy because it's ridiculous. The whole idea is ridiculous. But what's funny is that the idea keeps persisting. People keep asking about it. And it's to a certain extent, you kind of go, you know, if anybody's listening, maybe there's an appetite for young Picard. If enough people ask, maybe it'll turn up. I don't know. It's, it's interesting that the idea won't die. And this is one of those things, too, where, you know, when, whenever you're, you're writing a character and you always think about doing a flashback, the question always becomes, well, who's going to play the younger version of the character? And I would not be surprised if they crack a story in the Picard writer's room that involves a flashback and then they instantly say, oh, well, we'll just we'll just call James McAvoy. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, do I think it's going to happen? Probably not. But you never know. You never know. But that does bring us to our first community question this week. Would you like to see James McAvoy as a young Picard in the upcoming series? Would you like to see someone else in the young Picard role? Would you like the series to remain focused on an aged Picard? What about Tom Hardy? Where's he in all this? Leave us your comments for this community question on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO398 or by replying to our social media posts asking this community question later on this week. This week kicked off the After Trek replacement, The Ready Room. Hosted by Naomi Kyle, the Star Trek Discovery Companion's first webisode had the host sitting across from Discovery executive producers Alex Kurtzman and Heather Caden. The nearly 14-minute interview covered story threads, including Caden's verification that the Spock and Burnham relationship is the story of season two, rumor clarification, emphatically shooting down the rumor that Spock and Burnham will have a romantic relationship, they will not, and some talk about upcoming productions. Caden and Kurtzman discussed the draw to short treks, pointing an ability to tell fun stories in different ways. When asked what was next for short treks, Caden replied, quote, We're doing two more this for this season okay. that are animated, not at all like what we're doing with Lower Decks, which yeah. is going to be our new animated show, so a completely different style of animation. Mm -hmm. And I think they're also going to answer some questions of things that we've dropped into the first season that maybe you didn't even know you had questions about, but we're going to fill in some blanks. Check out the show notes for a link to the ready room. My, okay, the great information, la-di-da. Um, <laughs> I was not impressed with this new host. I felt, I, I, if you guys, I don't know if you guys watched it, but if she felt, she seemed sorely underprepared. You said the same thing about Matt Myra, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, it's, I, I, I feel like this is a step backwards 
in terms of what you know what what they did and you know it could have been it was her first episode she was nervous but uh it just the interview did not flow well like they like she did not come in with a list of questions ready nor was it pre-discussed in any way shape or form uh I want to go back and listen to our discussion before Discovery started because this is exactly the same thing you said about Matt Myra after the first episode of Aftertrack. And you came around to him by the end. So I think give it some time. <laughs> I I hope so. I hope so. I hope that she finds her footing and that, you know, that that it doesn't seem there were there were odd pauses after an answer that was like, oh, uh, think of another question off the top of my head. You know, it just, it, it was, it was just awkward. And so, um, congratulations. <laughs> Certainly a little jealous. <laughs> not that we, not that, you know, not that I ever had a chance, but, um, yeah, I just, I, I hope that these are a little more structured. I hope that they're a little more directed with, you know, if they're not going to be taking questions from Facebook or whatnot, then, then be prepared for the interview. I started watching it and I turned it off like after the first question and answer because I did. I agree. I thought it was very awkward. It was very weird, um, and it. I just didn't really want to know any more information. Um, I think that um, I. I do. I do know that. I think there are people that are excited that she's hosting because she is hosted some things in the past and. There are some people that are fans of hers, so hopefully it does work out. I mean, we obviously want it to to feel good and to give us good information, but I, I completely agree that it was it was an awkward first step. Can we just talk for one second about um, this quote that we heard from Heather Caden? Here's what she says: uh, Some of the the new animated short tracks are going to answer some questions from the first season that you didn't even know you had. I feel like I'm being like the negative Nelly here, but can we just like leave the first season? It's fine. It's fine. It's done. The the, the wonderful thing about short treks for me is the, is the fact that you are able to tell short stories in the Star Trek universe that might have a tangential relationship to other things that are going on, but generally speaking, it allows you to sort of break out of the discovery thing and move on to tell this story over here or this story over here. And I kind of like when they do little hints of what happened and they kind of tie it in, but I'm done with season one. We're kind of, let's look forward. Let's tell some different stories, um, especially on an animated um, platform. You can do anything. So I, I was a little bit, I felt like that was a little bit uh, backwards focused, and I hope that it, that's just sort of a misrepresentation of what they're doing. Gee, it's like they're trying to do some patchwork on a on a shoddy season. <laughs> just let it be. I hope that these stories are like somebody was inspired about a little nugget from season one, and not that they are that they think they're going to go back and fix stuff. Because I agree, like you know, there's another famous sci-fi franchise that would go back and fix things and re-release things and it never worked out I don't like sand it's coarse rough and irritating and it gets everywhere last week we asked if Star Trek was dead on the silver screen it turns out Paramount Studios producer Wick Godfrey doesn't think so In a New York Times article outlining the future of Paramount Pictures, Godfrey stressed the importance of Paramount's making movies that stand the test of time. 
The article, which is at times scathing, says that Godfrey has an interest in breathing new life into big-budget global audience movies, including Star Trek, Terminator, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and G.I. Joe. An exception from the article reads, quote, Imagine, for instance, Paramount giving Star Trek to Quentin Tarantino. Suddenly, people's eyes are lit up, Mr. Godfrey said. Yours just did, end quote. For a link to the article, check out the show notes. I thought it was an interesting idea when there was more of a balance between uh, film production and television production. I think it's very clear now that the television production side of Star Trek is a total juggernaut. And um, I don't think the movies are going to be able to compete with that. They're, they, they, they no longer have the flexibility to try and create a cinematic universe um, they've, they've, they're, they're boxed into a corner. They've got the Kelvin timeline. They can't be experimenting the way that television has just committed to because they will just look like they're playing catch up. So, um, I'm, I, first of all, I hated every, everything that this article said about, <laughs> about what could happen to Star Trek movies. I just, I hated everything about it. Um, the guy, like, don't, please don't talk about a Star Trek movie series um at the same time you're talking about rebooting terminator and teenage mutant ninja turtles um i think we're gonna need a lot more than quentin tarantino to make a star trek movie seem appealing and have a point of difference now paramount pictures has been bleeding money since 2016. 2016 saw 136 million in dollars in operating losses um and that has you know, poured into 2018 and I'm sorry, 2017 Paramount just hasn't been making any decent film, not just Star Trek. I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles flopped. Their GI Joe franchise also flopped. Paramount just hasn't, doesn't know how to make movies anymore. Right now, CBS television studios is producing far better quality. And so I can see why you know, the, those people in position are thinking about having CBS take over Paramount. Well, that's it for this week's Star Trek news. Now let's find out what happened this week in the world of Star Trek gaming. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. Before we get into Star Trek Online and gaming news, let's welcome back from the Priority One Armada, Admiral Winters. Hello, everybody. It's been a long road getting from there to here. It's been a long time since Star Trek Online boldly went where no MMO had gone before. As part of the ninth anniversary celebration, Cryptic has released some statistical information. For instance, over 7 million captains are in command of over 550 playable ships, the community has spawned nearly 40,000 fleets, and you can experience 180 episode missions featuring over 30 Star Trek actors. That's more episodes than any single Star Trek television show. It truly is a great time to be a Star Trek fan. And with Star Trek booming on the small screen again, this is also a great time to be a Star Trek gamer. I remember that um, they have removed an awful lot within the nine years as well. You know, like the, when they were going back revamping certain story arcs, you know, they retired old missions. So if you counted all those, it's probably well over 220 or more. But I'm very interested to see what it's going to be like next year. 
they have to do something enormous next year for a 10-year anniversary. Oh, that's true. I didn't even think about that. Like, I was just thinking, oh, we're going to get more Discovery content, and then, you know, at some point they're going to shift into a new story. And I was thinking, you know, for the next year or two, we're probably going to go back and forth between new Discovery content and and some new 25th century story arc. So uh, you're right. The 10th anniversary has got yep, to be big. That um, has got to be. A decade for the duration of the game. It's just, it's huge. Two five-year missions. Wow, you just you just like put it into Star Trek terms. That's amazing. Yeah, I didn't even boom, but uh, yeah, the boom, mic. You, triple drop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other thing is this list of all the Star Trek actors is is pretty impressive. Um, it really makes you think. And what's amazing to me is that they've pulled actors from every single iteration of Star Trek, even some of the fan productions, they have actors from there coming in and and voicing characters and creating new characters that we want to know more about. I mean, Kumarke is a perfect example of a character that just belongs in Star Trek and that we've grown to really love and appreciate and and want to do more and, and, and see more of her. The other thing is, did you notice the person at the very end? Yes. Well, Rekha Sharman was announced at STLV when Elijah was doing the panel. But we have not seen her in the game, and there's no image of her. I thought that was interesting. And I was like, right, okay, so, you know, like, how come there hasn't been uh, any word on on her at all? Yes, you know, like, apart from STLV, but there's been nothing about her since. So I'm kind of excited to see what's going to happen with her. Also, with the ninth anniversary, we are treated to the debut of Mary Universe Captain Sylvia Killy and the ISS Discovery. Chief Scientist Somat from the Vulcan Science Academy has asked for your assistance in regaining contact with their science team on the planet Pavo. You arrive at the planet during a foreshadowing ion storm, and soon into your investigation, the ISS Discovery appears, along with a slew of Klingon ships. Upon making contact with Discovery's commanding officer, you're surprised to learn that she is seeking asylum and requests your assistance with repelling the Klingons. After a brief space battle, then some boarding party action on the Discovery herself, you meet Captain Killy on the bridge. Her intentions seem to be sincere, and she apparently hates bad language. During the second space battle, the Discovery swings by the planet and drops Killy off. Then, just as we think the Klingons have the upper hand, a massive energy blast from Pavo takes out several of the Klingon ships. Killy then threatens you and demands that you leave. In the second episode, you return to Pavo to confront the Terrans. Making your way to the surface, you discover that the Terrans have used agonizer technology to corrupt the Pavans and their planet. Killy has, in fact, weaponized the Pavan signal spire, which threatens the entire galaxy. During the mission, Somat and the Vulcan security forces become temporarily linked to the Pavans causing them to rage against your away team. After disabling Somat and company and making your way to the Pavan Spire, you engage in a battle against Killy and her forces. Once the battle is over, Killy monologues for a bit in order to allow her escape plan to activate, and then she disappears into the cosmos. Now you have to deal with getting Discovery back to its proper time. After keeping the Klingons at bay and setting up satellites in the Ion Storm, you barely return the Discovery to the 23rd century in one piece. So Parapachin was a pretty straightforward episode. I think where both of these episodes really shined was with the environment. Um, Absolutely. 
I mean, yep. the interior of the Discovery was gorgeous. Even the system of Pavo itself with the ion storm and the lightning right. was, was really, it was, ugh, it was, it just, it felt like nothing I'd really seen in the game up to that point. Agreed, agreed. That, yeah, that lightning storm in space was just beautiful. When you go down to Pavo, it's also just as stunning. I mean, I, as I was taking notes playing the episode, I also took some screenshots because at the point on Pavo where you're going through the cave, that light at the end of the tunnel was stunning. Absolutely stunning, yeah. you know. Um, so if you have the opportunity, set your graphics to max and make sure you're taking advantage of the new lighting because it was just gorgeous. With, with respect to the first mission, again, pretty straightforward, but it was it was really refreshing to see Mary Wiseman uh, in the game and playing Captain Killy. I was I was a little surprised at how it, it wasn't a stark contrast. It was. You know, she doesn't. She still doesn't let cursing happen on the bridge. Things like that. Regardless, though, I loved uh, any interaction with with Tilly is great because after all, we all are hashtag silly for Tilly. I actually thought that they were very interesting choices that they took with with Killy, because I think the expectation is that she's going to be brutal, and she she wasn't. But there was there was still like an intense confidence and an undertone of evil. Like, I, I never once trusted her from the very beginning, even when she was requesting asylum. But I, I thought it was really interesting the way that she comes across. I thought it was an interesting choice. But she still felt very Tilly. Right, and right. and I, and the, the thing about no swearing, I actually found to be kind of funny because Prime Universe Tilly doesn't really mind swearing. But oh, Mirror yeah, Universe Tilly doesn't want any part of it and then it kind of sets it up for a funny joke at the end of the second mission but I I really actually enjoyed it because it was not what I was expecting and it was I felt more more they didn't go too too far with it and that's what I was worried about is that they were going to go too far with the Tilly character Um, and there's a couple of moments in this when she's in her contact window she's playing with a knife yes and that that kind of that kind of freaked me out how good she is with that knife. And I think that that's kind of like, you know, a metaphor. It's like, oh, she's she's very casually, very fun playing with a knife because, you know, Killy is very fun and seems pretty casual. But at any moment, she could kill you with it. Right. <laughs> and I felt like that was an interesting choice to have that knife play. As and I felt it was kind of like a metaphor for her character in general uh, in this episode. Uh, I think you're absolutely dead right that the expectation is, you know, for her to be very aggressive and evil. Uh, and that's what I was expecting. And to be honest, I, I'm going the other way now. I, I was a little bit disappointed that she wasn't like that. I was very, very... I suppose excited to see the Killy character and I was you know I had this expectation in my mind and when I didn't get it I was a little bit disappointed with it but that's still not saying that Mary Wiseman still didn't do uh, a fantastic job she did yeah she knocked it out of the park yeah she really did and even the character art like her lying across the the captain's chair oh, the, the reveal legs dangling out you know that was brilliant both reveals of her on the bridge are fantastic Right, like, just yeah. so good. Um, I'm curious when at the end, by the end of the first episode, when she betrays you, did did that make you feel a little bit better that she was ruthless? Like in, in my mind, I feel like she is she is the way that we are expecting her to be, but that she plays us at the beginning because she needs our help, and then once once she's got the upper hand, 
she, you know, quote unquote, saves our ship by destroying the Klingons. And then she's like, all right, now you need to get out of here before I kill you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I find that to be so much ruthless as I do expect as I as I am expecting that of a mirror universe character. Right. You know, you know, she reminded me a lot of in this episode, the intendant. Right. Kira Norris's mirror version. You know, just kind of smooth and not necessarily sexual, but just like sly, you know, very smooth and cool kind of thing. Speaking of that, those reveals and the, the, the knife play and all that jazz, another shout out to Cryptic Studios because I don't remember ever seeing an animation like that. You know, that. No, it's usually just they stand oh, yeah. in front and they're looking at you and that's it. Right. There's no messing around with hands. You never see hands. This is the first time you've seen sort of leaning back and playing with this knife. Definitely right. was pretty cool. Again, you know, the cutscenes, amazing. I mean, they've really, you know, upped that part of the game and that part of their game. Um, yeah. It makes the episodes and the missions more cinematic, more more storytelling, and just makes you makes it a more immersive experience. I mean, the only thing that, uh, you know, we mentioned how beautiful the missions were, but in terms of story, I was expecting a little more with respect to its tie-in to Discovery at least the show. I mean, I'm sh- this is obviously they're, they're playing the long game here, Cryptic Studios, right? And they're storytelling. And this is not the last time that we're going to see Captain Killer. I hope not. And we still have Rekha Sharma coming down the pike. But it, you know, again, it was pretty straightforward. It was, it was an you know intercept mission, you know, and and save Pavo. I, I, I ended the missions going okay, cool. This was a cool mission. But story-wise, I don't know. I don't know if you guys felt that way either. Well, I think for me, it it I don't think they really could have done a lot of story because this really needed to be a self-contained, you know, story for two reasons. Number one, this was part of the ninth anniversary celebration, and they chose to place it in. I mean, they really had to place it in the. 25th century in 2410, right? right because right. Um, you can't you can't gate this behind the discovery new player experience. So it's got to be accessible, and and they probably didn't want to make it another you know simulation thing. So it has to be a story set apart from that timeline. And I think it was slightly awkward how it happens. I don't quite understand why all the Klingons come with them. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. It was it was an awkward start. It was just an right. awkward way of, of tying the Discovery storyline in with, with Star Trek Online. Uh, yeah, I, Awkward's a good... I think Awkward's a good description. I, I replayed these episodes right before we recorded, and my biggest uh, question, and probably my only negative of the, of the story, was how... I, I know why. I know why the Klingons are there, because the Discovery needs to end up being destroyed after it goes back in time. And the only way to... I guess the only way to do that was to have Klingons there. But I guess we could have done it. Like, I think it almost would have been better if the Klingons didn't come with them. They made the jump by themselves. And then and then we're the ones that have to fight the Discovery at the end. And it, it, it jumps back to the proper time and ends up being destroyed. I don't know. I, I understand why they did it. I just don't understand how logically speaking the Klingons come with them right and I also I'm also confused as to the timeline of the because because Killy says she sent to Pavo like in other words she she was ordered to go to Pavo and in in the mirror universe that basically means that somebody wants her dead 
because sending them to Pavo is basically you're going to die. So it implies that somebody is trying to, somebody above her ranks is trying to get rid of her. Okay. So from our perspective, Discovery was at Pavo. The USS Discovery was at Pavo in the prime timeline. They jump to Starbase 46, I think, or one of the Starbases. And in that jump, in the middle of that jump, they they jump to the mirror universe. But they but when they when they finish the jump, they're where the starbase is supposed to be. So they're no longer at Pavo. So the ISS discovery we know eventually ends up in the prime timeline and is destroyed, as per Admiral Cornwell telling the screw the crew of the USS Discovery. So does that mean that the ISS Discovery was jumping from the Starbase to Pavo, and in the middle of that jump, they jumped forward in time also? Well, that's that's what I'm I'm not sure of. Or were they at Pavo and then jumped? Like, and, and where did the Klingons come from from the 23rd century? Yeah, but does the ISS Discovery have the have jump capability? I don't think it does. I'll tell you what I'm confused about is why did the Klingons jump as if they had a spore drive? Exactly. And that's part of my confusion as well. That I didn't get, all right? Because you see uh, the ISS Discovery jumping in, and then there's a bunch of Klingon ships clearly jumping in via the uh, mycelial network or whatever it's called. And I was like, wait, what? How, how did they get that tech? What, what? Why do the Klingons have that technology? And it, it really, really confused me in that first mission. Well, what's interesting is that the Ion Storm has a similar graphical effect as the Spore jump, right? The lightning is very similar. Just to be clear, the ISS Discovery had the same, out- according to Memory Alpha, the ISS Discovery had the same outward appearance as the USS Discovery, but lacked a mycelial-powered Spore drive. And that's from Vaulting Ambition, the episode Vaulting Ambition. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. so wow. whatever happened, whatever... Lorca did to bring the USS Discovery into the Mirror Universe must have caused some type of... That makes even less sense. That it makes me confused as to how they switched places in the first place because they, they're like... And to and to Winter's point, how did the how did the Klingons get there with him? So something right. happened. Well, that's so the Ion Storm is there, and we know that there's a correlation between Ion Storms and um, transversing universes, right? But number one, the two the two entities that switch places are usually doing the same action. So in the episode Mirror Mirror, they're they're transporting up from a planet through an Ion Storm, so they switch places. But they were transporting at the same time. Uh, even Lorca mentions that he was being beamed at the same time as his counterpart uh, during the destruction of the Baran. And it was in an ion storm. So the ion storm thing is cool in this mission, but it it doesn't directly relate to how the, dis- the USS Discovery jumped into the Mirror Universe. And also, it even confuses things further because... So let's say that the Klingons appear because of the Ion Storm, but they're not Mirror Universe Klingons, right? Yes, they are. Yeah. No, they're Mirror Universe Klingons. Are you yeah, sure? Yeah, that, that was my take on it, too. Yeah. Oh, see, not, no, I rem- took... Remember, I took... Those, those Klingons are certainly Discovery-era Klingons. And... No, no, they are, but the thing is, is that Somat says that they're, that they're 23rd century Klingon ships, but... But Discovery, the TV show, established that um, mirror universe Klingon ships are part Vulcan technology. So why wouldn't that have come up when he scanned the ships? 
they they shouldn't be the same style of ship. Yeah, no, my understanding, you see, like, this is a kind of awkward storytelling we're seeing, right? Yeah. Is that, yeah. Is that there, are some, there are some holes that, that I don't know why were in this plot. So, you know, again, we know that the Age of Discovery is, you know, a, a long game for Star Trek Online, and maybe these questions will be answered. But, yeah, this was, this was a little all awkward, right? This was just a little, yeah. you know... I wouldn't say fumbled, but but certainly. no, not at all. I, th- I I think that given the situation with the new TV show and the game setting, that including discovery content is going to be awkward in some way, shape, or form. Let's let's be clear that this isn't taking away from you know all the other positives. The the missions were great. The 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 rest of the storytelling was was I thought really well done and effective and and it was a fun episode, you know, a fun ep- both of them are fun episodes. We didn't talk much about the second one, but you know, the the switch with with Somat and the security officers I thought was kind of cool. And then I thought the battle with Killy at the end was was really well done. I felt like I was actually doing stuff. Um, I liked that there was a puzzle aspect to it, um, so a little bit of a puzzle aspect to it. But I and I thought that the the final cutscene with her was just fantastic, and the the joke where she swears at the crew was was really nice because that to me meant that she was so mad at us she was willing to swear at us. Right. And right. after we've established she doesn't like swearing on the bridge. So how about that? Just for a second, uh, Star Trek Online bringing in swearing first time ever i was i was surprised but i was yes pleasantly surprised and uh and i thought that it i thought that it's the only instance where you really could get away with that i don't know well that brings us to another community question this week what did you think of the featured episodes from mirror of discovery the Infinity Duty Officer promotion is back. From now until Monday, February 4th, when you purchase a Duty Officer from the C-Store, you will receive another 10 low-buy crystals or a Tier 6 promotional ship choice pack. Also, on both PC and console, captains can earn 50% more accommodation XP during a Junior Officer Appreciation Weekend. And any Duty Officers purchased from the C-Store will grant an additional green quality or better doth. If you haven't claimed it already, you can also speak with your duty officer contact to receive a special purple doff. Then from February 7th to Monday, February 11th, captains on PC can take advantage of a double XP weekend. Woohoo! And starting Thursday, February 14th, celebrate Valentine's Day with the start of an Alachi Alert weekend. Console captains can also look forward to the Arena of Sompak returning Thursday, February 7th until Monday, February 11th. Now, let's see what's on screen in the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, New Eden. On screen. Well, captains, welcome to On Screen, where we dissect the latest episode of Star Trek. This week, Star Trek Discovery, Season 2, Episode 2, New Eden. Captain Pike seems to be settling into the USS Discovery, and in his new ready room, he and Burnham share some information. Burnham reveals Spock's map of the Red Bursts, and Pike tells Burnham that Spock is in a psychiatric ward, and the Vulcan science officer didn't want anyone to know. (sighs) That's so Spock. Now, before you can say Spock's secrets, another Red Burst activates, but it's over 50,000 light years away. That's 150 years at maximum warp. Thank goodness for space shrooms. A hop, skip, and spore jump later, and the Discovery is where it's supposed to be. But again, the Red Burst is nowhere to be found. 
In its place, the crew find a human colony that is over 200 years old. After a little discussion about pre-warp civilizations and General Order 1, Pike, Burnham, and Awashikun beam down in disguise. The away team is told that the human colonists were transported to this distant world by a red angel during Earth's Third World War. Because of this experience, many here are deeply religious, though a man from a scientific family named Jacob believes humans have survived the Great War and now explore the stars. Back on Discovery, we learned that the colony is threatened by radioactive disruptions. Tilly is injured while experimenting on the dark matter asteroid recovered in the previous episode, Brother, is visited by an old friend, and comes up with a plan to use the dark matter and spore donut to move the radiation away from the colony. On the planet, Pike takes a phaser to the chest and is saved by Burnham and Awoshakun's quick thinking. Pike's rigid adherence to General Order 1 is weakened after a heart-to-heart with Burnham, and Pike returns to Terralysium to share some truth and a battery with Jacob. In return, Pike receives a broken helmet that contains video from the colony's salvation. Later in his ready room, Pike uses the repaired helmet cam to view the video, and a red angel is revealed to the captain. The end. So uh, let's talk about some touchstones here um, with this particular episode, and then we'll start getting into some of the nitty-gritty things. This episode does seem to be consistent with canon from First Contact, uh, Enterprise, the World War III happening between 2026 and 2053, and 600 million people dying. Also, hashtag Metreon particles. Too bad they weren't mega particles to celebrate Star Trek Online, but... (laughs) Everything would have to shut down. Uh, so that's that's great, right? They're, they are paying attention to mm-hmm. canon. It's funny because we were talking about this for our After Hours episode for our patrons. And we were talking about exposition, right? There's the, the so much exposition. And when I, was, uh, when I was watching the episode and taking notes, I write down tardigrade exposition as if they're catering to people who never watched season one. Yeah. Which is exactly your point, Kenna. Yeah, I mean, I, they're, they're, still, they're still suffering. I think I'm hoping that this is growing pains going into the second season, that they're, they're trying to sort of find their feet a little bit. They talk an awful lot. And I just, I want to say to them all, I will say fewer things. You know, like Stamet said to Tilly in the first episode. It's as though the writers are writing a script rather than using a script to depict what's happening on screen. Um, the, the talking about the tardigrade and the spore drive at the beginning was um, a great example. Like, Pike, Pike should know about that. He knew about Lorca. He should know about the tardigrade. There's, there's no reason to explain it. Um, the other glaring example that really took me out of it was when Awoshikun was going to unlock the, the trap door and said, oh, if it's a bolt thing that I can open it with a magnet. I'm going to go and find a magnet. Oh, here, I found something. Here, I'll do it now. Like, she's an engineer. She could have just looked at it and go, hang on, gone and got the thing and just opened it. We'd, I don't care that it's a magnet. Nobody cares that it's a magnet. I don't care how she opened it. She's just clever. You know, so they need to just dial it back on the talking a little bit and let the action speak for itself because it's a great episode. It tells a great story and a lot of really awesome visuals let down because they're just trying a little too hard with the script. Something I do want to say about Awoshakun, as a matter of fact, all the bridge crew, is that 
I like the direction that they're taking with it. I agree. They are no longer just yes sir, no sir, uh, incoming transmission sir. They are, they are now more involved in these last two episodes. We're getting to know them. Getting to know all about them. Sorry. <laughs> and that's great, right? Because you know, one of the reasons we enjoy watching Star Trek and we grow to love a series is because of the Famili the familiar unit that develops over the course of its storytelling. So I am glad to see much more involvement from the bridge. Now, there is one notable exception to that that I have to point out, and we can come back to that. Uh, they've got a new actress for Arium. <laughs> so, she's, so she's totally different. Well, it's interesting because in, in previous incarnations of Star Trek, the bridge crew was kind of already a team from the get-go. And I think one of the refreshing things about Discovery, including season one, is that we we see this growth into a team. And we're and we're not quite there yet because they're still kind of figuring stuff out. And I feel like what's cool about this season is that this is the first chance they get to really be a team under good leadership. And that's what I'm looking forward to the most. And the Arium thing has got me like that's like been in my head because the actress who played Ariam in season one had like one or two lines. It's now a different actress, but instead of her being completely replaced, the uh, Sarah Midich who played her in season one has another role. And she was actually in the scene in season one in episode one of season two where they bring the asteroid on board and she's actually standing next to Ariam. And I'm just like, I'm just like bugging me why they they moved her or replaced her. The only thing I can think of is that it it's a SAG issue, a, a Screen Actors Guild thing, where where they they don't want to give her like an upgrade to her SAG card in order to because then they'd have to give her more lines or whatever. So they went and they got another actress to replace her to do that because why else would she still be on the show? Also, she's credited in a future episode as hmm. Arium 2.5, the new actresses. So possibly even it's an upgrade or something. I really hope that they explore that character and that story more. And maybe the actress change is going to be part of that story. So who knows? The, uh, a few other things that really were just stand out for me in this episode was Mary Wiseman. Now, I know, hashtag silly for Tilly, but in the moment that she's dissecting the asteroid that was a little i got that that was that exposition that we really didn't need i could almost forgive it for tilly's character because she's a talker uh but it was still a little over the top and to, to your point ken i just we didn't need to hear all of that stuff just do it you know we got exposition about how this could save stamets and you know maybe it'll keep him like, we didn't need any of that you know we didn't need to hear she didn't have to explain that unless they were like let's pretend like season one didn't happen but what I really want to talk about with Mary Wiseman is after she's injured and her entire everything, every scene that she was in was just stellar. You know, you know what good acting is when you know how to react, right? When she's lying there listening to Saru sort of scold her and mentor her a little bit, she is so in the moment and so reacting not overreacting she is just there and in the moment and in the rest of the episode it's the same thing 
Mary Wiseman is in the moment. And, I mean, kudos to her. That's hard to do. That's hard to, to have a camera on you listening to another actor, right? It's That's a hard thing for, for an actor to just kind of stand there sometimes. The, the problem is that they've taken the silly for Tilly movement, and I think they, they're treading on the verge of taking it a little too far because we've seen in the first two episodes now she's they're they're writing her as some kind of wonderkind and i'm i worry that she's going to then just be like hey we need somebody to help us resolve this episode um let's make tilly do it i love tilly i i really can't get enough of her these last two episodes I think they've given her a little too much and um, I like I'm waiting for it to all to burn out a little bit she's 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 a little bit Wesley 2.0 to borrow a phrase from Mission Log it's a little it's a little too much it's interesting because I I feel like they're not like in season one they let some of her moments rest more and in in this season they're not really doing that they're sort of pushing it faster and further Uh, in a lot of respects not just with Tilly but I I, I see what you mean and I think that if they just let some of those moments rest more it wouldn't feel so so forced I do like where I think they're taking her and uh, the challenges that the Tilly character is going to have to overcome and I I like that, and, and I want to see more of that, and I think that's where they're going. So I hope it's going to be more about how does she overcome some of her insecurities to become a great commander. And I think they're going to give us those moments, but I, I hope that they let them rest a little bit and really allow us to sort of savor them. Talking about the plot itself, I, I want to say, you know, last last week, Anthony and I got into this because I, I, I was going to, I knew I was going to hate this episode if there was no mention of the Red Bursts or the Red Angels. If, if that plot line if that that theme that we're going to be following this this plot that we're going to be following supposedly for for a majority of the season if that didn't play a role in this episode my argument is magic to make the saintest man go cuckoo the 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 timey-wimey one from season one one of the, one of my biggest problems with that episode is that yeah. it had nothing to do with the Klingon War, and Anthony's argument is that oh, oh it's all God. about this. One of the, the reasons that he enjoyed the episode, if I'm not mistaken, was that it, it was all about character, getting the character, 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 and 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 growing. Sure, okay, but there's no reason that that couldn't happen while still staying within the Klingon arc, the Klingon story arc. This episode, New Eden, is an excellent example of how you can tell great character story, how you can move characters forward and mature them without sacrificing what the season is about in serialized television, right? So we talked a little bit about this before. Kenna pointed out that this red burst was the B plot. The A plot was the people on New Eden. But the B plot was was how we got there. We were sent here by the by the red burst and the and the red angels, and we still have a mystery. By the way, speaking of mysteries, where was Tig? Where was Jen, Janet Reno? I I will quickly just disagree with your first point about magic to make the saintest man go mad. But I will say that this episode does it better. You're absolutely right. It does it better. It tells those stories. And I would argue that the red bursts are actually the C plot and that the B plot is the radiation rings 
and and that the the crew of the Discovery have to have to get rid of those. And and Tilly's sort of journey and problem solving that is really the B plot. The thing that I was most surprised at with this episode in the plot was that these red bursts. This seems to be something that. I think whoever these red angels are, presumably aliens or whatever, I think they're purposefully guiding the discovery. Yes, I agree. I agree. But th- w- now we're speculating. But but I was pleasantly surprised that it was going to be that connected. Like, I, I honestly thought this was going to be more of a standalone one-off episode. But now it seems to me that every everything they do... And and every every point that they go to in these red bursts is going to be a a string of activities that are really all going to be tied together. And I think that they really were bringing that plot that point home. And I absolutely love it. I absolutely and May, this character Tilly's uh, childhood friend May, obviously connects that. With respect to the episode itself and the story that we're told about the the people on New Eden, I loved it. I loved the, the uh, Kenna. I know you you didn't. The juxtaposition of faith and science and religion. Mind you, three separate things, but not mutually exclusive, as we've spoken about before. Pike knows religion, right? His father was a theologian and a scientist. Whether or not he's a man of faith, we don't know. We don't really know. He's familiar. He says to them, she says, peace be with you, and he knows to reply, and also with you. But that doesn't mean he's a man of faith. He, he just knows religion. What I think made this episode Star Trek was that it also reminded, it asked questions that that always got me going even when I was a kid. What if Jesus was an alien kind of thing, you know? That, that concept of what he talks about with, he, he mentions uh, Arthur C. Clarke and how technology can seem like magic. You know who talked about that? Picard in Who Watches the Watchers, right? And that's a fantastic episode. Pike goes on to talk about how philosophers and theologians have expanded that to suggest that that a- any extraterrestrial or alien civilization so far advanced could seem like God, right? So I love that question. I love that question I, because us right now as humans, imagine going back in time in the 1920s with a cell phone in your hand. How incredible would that be? So that's that's why this episode felt like Star Trek to me. It harkened back to the question of where, what is our place in this universe? And how can we continue to move forward without losing our minds? So I think there's a pretty major issue coming out of this episode that Pike totally violates what he said at the beginning with General Order 1. And he emphasizes all throughout this episode the need to allow them to sort of evolve at their own rate. Uh, And then he kind of gets convinced by Jacob towards the end, doesn't he? And then he ends up giving him his power cell. There's some pretty serious repercussions to that. And it wasn't until I watched it the second time. There's a conversation that they have quite near the beginning of the episode. Um, They ask, you know, didn't didn't you ever try and figure out what had happened to you? And they kind of said, well, people stopped coming to the church once the lights went out. You know, they didn't come to the church anymore, Um, which then ties, of course, directly back in. So Pike is there. He's actually attempting to influence their their evolution by giving them a power cell and then the vision of, sorry, the visual of all the lights coming back on in the church. Um, I don't think that we're going to see the end of these people. I don't think this was the end 
of our interactions with Jacob and all of this. Because that is a huge, open-ended kind of thing to leave you on. Um, there's a lot of repercussions, and I don't, I don't really know how I feel about it. Because I'm not sure I agree with his application of General Order One in the in, to begin with. These are people who actually lived through a very traumatic experience and were more or less abducted. I'm not sure that they qualify as a pre-warp species that needs to be left to evolve on their own. I'm not sure if that qualifies. So you agree with Michael Burnham? I don't know. We could debate that for a whole other episode, honestly. My gut instinct, actually, if I was in their shoes, I probably would tread very softly. Because, you know, you don't want to force something on somebody that they're not going to be able to psychologically handle. There was enough information on both sides of the argument that, that I didn't feel like I was being preached at one way or the other. And I think that's what the best sci-fi and the best Star Trek does, is it is it sets up two sides of an argument and then lets you think about it and decide. And this episode in general was sort of a greatest hits of a lot of great Star Trek episodes, but done in a somewhat unique way. And I think that's why it's really resonating with a lot of people and and why people are enjoying this season a lot more than last season. Like I have just one little thingy to add here at the end of this segment, um, because for those of you who are listening who are Star Trek Online fans, you may have noticed a striking similarity of the image of the Red Angel on the stained glass uh, to uh, your favorite Iconian and mine, uh, Tiket. I mean, there's a striking resemblance. And to people that, you know, maybe are fans of the Iconian War story arc in Star Trek Online, um, that might be kind of an exciting, titillating idea that this could be Iconians. Now, I just, I wanted to give a quick, brief recap, and it'll just be a minute, on, on who the Iconians are, why they're significant in Star Trek canon. Because if you've only ever watched Star Trek TV or the movies, you may not be aware of who the Iconians are, but of course if you played Star Trek Online, you couldn't have missed the entire story arc. Um, The Iconians were um, a highly advanced civilization that peaked out about 200,000 years ago, and they were capable of using a gateway technology uh, that could transport them far distances across the galaxy. Now, they actually believed in a really strict version of the Prime Directive, and they believed that sharing their technology was harmful to lesser advanced species. So this they have kind of in common with the Federation. Now, they were largely peaceful uh, until they got attacked by a coalition of sort of developing species who thought that they were being selfish by not sharing their technology. And that's kind of the end of the peaceful Iconians, and this is where it starts to get a little bit timey-wimey complicated. So fast forward to the 25th century. Um, After this attack on Iconia, the Iconians were kind of decimated. They got scattered across the galaxy, and they, the ones who survived kind of became a warlike species, and they acquired servitor races, some that you might recognize um, from DS9 and Voyager, the, the Solanae, the Alachi, the Vaudoir. Oh, next generation, the Bluegill. Yeah, the Bluegill parasites, they were um, something that the Iconians used to control some of their servitor races. So their goal here was to sort of sow discord in the galaxy until they could kind of rise to power again. The long story short was the Iconians, by the time we hit the 25th century, they, they, it turns out that they were behind basically every major storyline in Star Trek. 
and Star Trek Online and every Star Trek series, including the Hobus disaster. And there's some speculation online as well that the Guardian of Forever is actually Iconian as well. It's insane, right? The Iconians are basically behind everything. In the 25th century, they mounted an attack. They were finally strong enough. It was a, an attack against the, ally, the allied forces of the Federation, the Klingons, pretty much everybody who wasn't Iconian. Through a, a number of sort of convoluted series of events, the Alliance sent a team back through time, back to Iconia, where they had first been attacked 200,000 years ago. Uh, now, when they got to the past, they realized that the Iconians were actually pretty cool. And so they decided instead to try and help them so that they could survive, therefore preventing them getting scattered and turning into a warlike species, etc. But... There was, also, there was always this, um, this historical uh, event that the others saved the Iconians from total destruction. And yeah, nobody knew who the others were. Yeah, so this mysterious beings. It turns out. No, no, it, like, it, it, turns it turns out, out it's us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but when we go in the past, we actually we in Star Trek Online, the player and the the people from the Alliance are kind of helping the Iconians, and right at the end, Sela, um, who at that point is the former Empress of the Romulan Star Empire, um, she's overcome with grief because the Iconians killed all the Romulans right in the Hobus disaster. And she goes <laughs> a little bonkers and starts killing all the Iconians. And then as it's sort of petering out, she realizes in horror that she's the one that caused them to then become the warlike species. And therefore, she kills her own people, basically. It's, really, it's a really touching story arc. And if you haven't played it, go get a Star Trek Online account and play it. Um, there's also a really good um, couple of articles on Memory Alpha and Memory Beta about this. In the end, Sela tries to make amends and she brings an artifact back to the future and they broker a truce. Long story short, it's all fine, in, but not until the 25th century. Um, so where does Discovery fit into all this? So Disco is in 2265, which is about 150 years before the Iconian War in Star Trek Online. Um, so we haven't at this point heard of the Iconians yet, although they will have been doing stuff around in the background. But there's a couple of things. Iconia was actually, they actually found Iconia in TNG. I don't know if you remember this in, in the episode Contagion where the Enterprise and the Romulan Warbird get affected by the weird proby thing. So they found Iconia there. Um, but also they were, I didn't realize this, Iconia was mentioned on a tactical map on the Bridge of the Discovery in the season one episode, Choose Your Pain. That's the one where Lorca gets kidnapped and we meet Ash Tyler. So Iconia is kind of n a known thing, even in Discovery. The reason people keep talking about Tiket is literally just because it looks similar. Um, but <laughs> let's be kind of honest. It's not going to be Tiket. It's like weird, right? Why Why would CBS use a very visibly well-known character that's already been developed for the online game? It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but it's really fun to think about, and I don't know. There's obviously cross-communication happening. Whether or not it's... it's I, I mean, there's a striking resemblance, not just to Taket, but just to the Iconian form that we see in Star Trek Online. There is a striking resemblance to what we've seen so far, especially in the stained glass window. You know, Kenna, you tweeted out a picture comparatively. It is striking. Yeah, she was the, she was the particularly warlike one. 
Yeah. Which makes it interesting if it is Tiket, you know, what we've seen so far from the Red Angel appears to be benevolent and appears to be directing Discovery to rescue people. But I'm not sure that that's what it's going to end up being. Wouldn't that be something? I would not be surprised if it was Iconians. I don't think it's Tiket specifically. Um, I would be I would be less surprised if it was like a rogue faction of Iconians, like maybe one or two Iconians that decided that they were going to do something different than Discord, than so Discord in the galaxy. And I think the, my issue is that if it's not the Iconians and they've created some new, you know, alien entity that is so close to the Iconians, then they clearly are not doing their homework and they've failed as as Star Trek canon keepers. Well, I think we're at a good place to wrap up on screen this episode. We've covered New Eden pretty in depthly this episode. Now, let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See? We are getting to know each other. Well, Captains, hailing frequencies are now open, and we're ready to receive all of your incoming messages. Episode 397's community question was, Does Star Trek still have a place on the silver screen? Or have advances in television production made Star Trek movies a thing of the past? Our patron, Jim DeVico, writes in, This is a great question. I've been thinking a lot about this since it was asked in last week's podcast. I believe that there is still room for both mediums in Star Trek's future. From an effects perspective, the two mediums have become quite close. Movies have bigger budgets and could conceivably do more visually. The problem with movies is the one-and-done nature of them and the many years between them. Here, a singular Star Trek story could be told in a two- to three-hour time frame. Television, on the other hand, allows for in-depth storytelling across many hours. Since Star Trek is all about storytelling, character arcs, and societal commentary, TV allows for this deep dive. This doesn't mean that TV can't do what movies do, but why do it? I don't exactly know how to respond to the comment because he he, he sort of talks about movies as a one-and-done thing uh, versus television where you get in-depth storytelling across uh, several hours. My, my central issue with that is that I think movies are one-and-done, but you're able to tell a much more complex story because you're taking in a couple of hours. I actually am not that into the huge, gigantic, sprawling arc thing that's going on in television. So, um, so for me, the, those, the, it's not as much of a contrast as I think Jim sees. I would argue that we're still not seeing that on television because television seasons are no longer what they used to be, right? Now we're only getting anywhere between 12 to 15 episodes for a season. Perhaps Star Trek, what needs to happen, is in fact the anthology series that was originally proposed, where maybe not for one season, but maybe two seasons where we're dealing with a story and a ship. And then, I mean, at, at some point, Discovery is going to have to end before the TOS era begins, right? So once this chapter of Star Trek is over, let's close it and start a new story. I think that the, the, the issue and concern I always have with Star Trek movies is that they tend to be, f- action tends to be forcibly infused into them. Because if you really think about it, what are the best Star Trek movies? Star Trek II, Star Trek IV, Star Trek VI, Star Trek First Contact. You know, arguably, 
they don't have a lot of action and they're usually about something. When we look at these films, they're great because we already knew who Khan was, mm -hmm. right? And we saw the, the we saw the the submarine film, right? Um, Undiscovered Country was great, but that was told because Klingons killed his son and he and Klingons were an adversary in the original series. So we're, we're, it's hard for us to separate, right? Do they stand the test of time as films on their own? I would argue that Wrath of Khan does of all the Star Trek films. I would argue that Wrath of Khan really can stand on its own and Undiscovered Country. So my point is these stories already had begun. The problem with the, with the, the Kelvin timeline was they were trying to retell a story, right? They were trying to... They were trying to make an episode into a movie, or they were trying to make a movie out of an like it was this weird thing that happened with the JJ verse because they were rebooting it, right? They were rebooting the timeline. So I don't know that unless we get a film for the cast of Discovery, I don't know that Star Trek can has. I, I I'm gonna say that no, I don't think Star Trek really is gonna shine anymore on the big screen as an independent thing, as a one-off thing. Arguably, the first Kelvin movie I, I really loved. I thought it was a great movie. Structurally, execution-wise, it was perfectly done. And in, and I think that where the J.J. verse went off the rails is when they tried to redo something in yeah. Into Darkness that had already been done. If they had stuck to sort of launching themselves into their own path and doing their, own, their thing, own five -year mission, I, I bet we'd be sitting here praising those films and we'd be getting yeah. ready to go see Star Trek 4. From Twitter, Multiverse Tonight says... Yes, movies have their place. They help attract new fans, but they need to be in the prime universe. Having multiple universes just confused the normals. Now, I object to the use of the word normals to Im imply that people who love Star Trek are abnormal. I don't think that's <laughs> entirely the case, but I kind of get what he's he's trying to uh, to get at. Trying to explain the backstory of Star Trek and why these people are like Star Trek, but they're not Star Trek, uh, is is a hard is a hard thing to understand. It raises the barrier to entry significantly. To this point, you know why Star Wars is good on its own? Because it's three movies of one story, <laughs> and it will be nine movies of one story. And it will be nine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It'll, it will be nine. Right. So keeping up with the Skywalkers. Exactly, exactly. Star Wars is incredibly simple, right? It's a very easy story to tell. Like, if somebody asks you what Star Wars is about, you can pretty much explain it pretty easily in under 10 minutes. If somebody asks you to explain the Star Trek franchise, you'd be like, I'm going to rent you a room in my house, we're going to go buy some food, and then we're going to sit down and talk. <laughs> You yeah, know? but that's because by comparison, there's 60 years and over 700 episodes worth of content versus nine films. Now, yes, you can argue that the animated stuff and blah, 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 blah. But at its core, people watch the original six, uh, seven, eight, nine. Um, but yeah, that's where it lives. Star Wars lives on the big screen. From Facebook, Matthew writes, I think DC and Marvel have shown that you can do both as long as you take the time to craft well-developed shows and movies. I, for one, want to see more shows and movies. I think that why they do so well is because they have a great process and they hire great people. Um, DC on television and Marvel in the films. And I think that 
I think for the first time, I feel like Alex Kurtzman is, when he took over the reins and the crew and the staff that he has, I'm feeling very good about that. And I think that if there ever is uh, new Star Trek movies, he needs to be uh, part of that process. Yo, not for nothing, but the Marvel Cinematic Universe is serialized, right? We've been following the same arc since 2000 and whatever the first movie came out. One thing that bothers me is everybody's like, oh, this has never been done before where they've combined movies and television. And I'm like, did you guys not watch Star Trek? Because right, there was right. a time when we would watch stuff on on TV and then we'd go see a Star Trek movie and it was all in the same universe. They weren't as well connected as the Marvel stuff is, but they were still connected. Well, that wraps up episode 398 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log and Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, and The Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Before we go, though, we can't forget to send a special thanks to our Patreon supporters. Diana Gunther, Darnell Dwayne Ross, David K. Rutley, Peter Archibald, and Star Kicker. And here's our community questions for this week. Would you like to see James McAvoy as a young Picard in the upcoming series? Would you like to see someone else in the young Picard role? Would you like the series to remain focused on an aged Picard? And what do you think of the Mirror of Discovery episodes, and did you enjoy the debut of Captain Killy? Captains, you know that we love to hear from you, so leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash podcast. Or you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at Priority One Pod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11.30 p.m. Eastern on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, be sure to spend time with Admiral Winters and the Priority One Armada. Saturday nights, the Armada takes to our Twitch channel where they review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as spotlight some of the amazing members in our community. Each week, we team up with you, the viewers, to earn things like reputation marks and dilithium. With regular giveaways, there is something for all Star Trek Online players. New, old, Iconian, Romulan. Follow us on twitch.tv forward slash Priority One. And if you'd like to join the Armada, visit PriorityOneArmada.com. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through Patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at Patreon.com forward slash Priority One. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about our show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at guardfrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. Thanks to audio editors including Brandon Parker, James Golding, Rand Hurl, Daniel Stevens, and our old friends Skiffy and Winters. Thanks to producer Jake Morgan for assisting in writing this show, as well as taking on our social media endeavors. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer Henry Pomper. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. 
Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Sue, no! Engage! That's not what he said. Nope. You gotta read it. <laughs> I'm jonesing for some trekking, man. Oh, jonesing for some trekking, man. Okay. <clears throat> <clears throat> Should I do it in a Scottish accent? No. <laughs> Please, God, jonesing. no. <laughs> jonesing for some Star Trek. Nope. Oh, Jesus. Quote. Nope. <laughs> Quote. Can you take that from the top? Because you did another one of those, like, that's just how I talk, Elijah. Hang on, this this sentence is garbage anyway. <laughs> I love how you spelt uh, intentions. Intentions, I, dude. I, I, did you did you notice I paused there because I was trying to figure <laughs> yeah. out what I had written, and I was like, "Holy <laughs> shit. intentions!" Intentions. It would help if whoever wrote this wasn't such a moron. I know, right? <laughs> He's yeah, such seriously. a. <laughs> I was expecting a little more. Great. Seriously. Seriously. Hey, do you have a window that you can look out of and try to find your professionalism? <laughs> Overall, though, with both missions, it was, you know, an interesting tie. Oops. I need you to look out the window and. <laughs> that wasn't me. That was. But, that was that me. wasn't me. That was. Winters. I know that. I know that. that I know that. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Fonts on silent now. The Infinity Duty Officer promotion is back from now <laughs> until duty. <laughs> because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Unless the Iconians save us. Engage Donut Maneuver. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.